0: At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, we'll be reading the entire psalm. Psalm 45, let's hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. To the chief musician set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon Your lips. Therefore, God has blessed You forever. Gird Your sword upon Your thigh, O Mighty One, with Your glory and Your majesty. And in Your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And Your right hand shall teach You awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under You. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the Queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the King will greatly desire your beauty. Because He is your Lord, worship Him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all-glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. May the Lord bless His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn back to Psalm 45 psalm 45 and let's focus our attention upon verses one and two as the psalmist has composed this psalm for the chief musician to be sung as a worship song by the house of israel and on down through the ages we've just earlier had an opportunity to sing it though I myself am not a chief musician, most of us are not, we have some, but uh, we've had the privilege to sing this ancient song of praise, prophetically speaking to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that it's set to the lilies, which may in fact be a tune, which is actually referenced in other prefaces to other psalms, set to the lilies. It was very important in certain cases for the composer of the psalm that this particular psalm would be assigned to a specific tune. This is a very important psalm and the psalmist is sensitive to that. That it ought to be sung to the lilies. It's a contemplation of the sons of Korah. So I think we're to assume that it was written by one of the sons of Korah, and this word maskil or contemplation means that we ought to pay careful attention to it as a source of teaching and as a source of meditation. And as we'll see, as a as a source of great encouragement and great joy and exhortation as well. And finally, we're told it's a song of love. In Hebrew, that word love is in the plural, a song of loves meant to amplify the degree of love that's being spoken of here. This is not just any sort of love, but this is the love relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his bride. A song of loves. And then he says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. So the psalmist is filled with the content of what he's about to write about. And in fact, he gives the impression that He's so filled with it uh, that his tongue is the pen of a ready writer. In other words, the the thoughts and ideas that are coming to his mind are coming to his mind with such clarity and such articulation as sometimes happens, Uh, we'd wish it would happen more often, but sometimes in prayer we have liberty and freedom. He's so filled with the sense of the beauty and glory of this great king that it's as though his tongue is the pen of a ready writer. and So he's just writing down furiously these things that are coming to his thoughts and coming to him by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is not a cold and calculating sort of a psalm, not that any of them are, but, but this is something that fills him with emotion and he's writing down and, the, and he's reciting the composition now that he's completed it. Uh, this composition that he wrote down furiously as these thoughts came to his heart. Now, as I mentioned, Psalm 45 is a song of loves, and that draws our attention, of course, to another song in the Scriptures, the Song of Solomon, which comprises an entire book of the Bible. The Song of Solomon is also sometimes referred to as the Song of Songs, in other words, Solomon wrote many songs, but this was the chief of them all. This was the song to end all songs, if you will. The pinnacle of his composition of songs. The song of songs. The song of Solomon that he wrote. And we know we've, we've gone through a number of passages in that book. We won't get deep into some of the controversies, but that's a book that speaks to us of Christ and the church in the full light of New Testament revelation, we cannot look at that book without immediately being drawn to King Jesus and desiring to be that bride, that wife, that Shulamite in union with our glorious Savior. And in this case, we have a psalm that really functions as a condensed version of the Song of Solomon. It's the Song of Solomon turned into a psalm to be sung in the life of God's people in public worship. We know not every song in the Bible is meant to be sung throughout the ages in public worship. God has employed an inspired editor to come up with the book of Psalms. And in that book of Psalms, we have this condensed Song of Solomon that allows us to sing of those glorious truths of the Song of Solomon. Now, as we're preparing for the Lord's Supper... And as we're, we're mindful of that fact, uh, this is a psalm that we ought to consider because this is a psalm that speaks to us of love. It's a song of loves. And the Lord's Supper is a feast of love. The Lord's Supper, above all opportunities, is an opportunity to come into the house of God with a heart that is overflowing with this good theme. A heart that's overflowing with Love upon love upon love for the Lord Jesus Christ. A heart that is so filled and overflowing with the good theme of Jesus Christ that it bursts forth as we sing psalms like this. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and that's what the psalmist is enabling us to do here. He's putting inspired lyrics onto our tongues so that we can express and articulate uh, the, the thoughts of our heart, the burden that we have to speak of the king. Now if you look at the beginning of the Song of Solomon, you can see a very similar phenomenon there, where Solomon speaking in in the words of the Shulamite and the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, we see Song of Solomon 1 verse 2, uh, the Shulamite says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth." And so here the psalmist, he, he's, he's thinking of these good ointments, this good theme, this fragrant aroma of King Jesus desiring uh, to be kissed with the kisses of His mouth and desiring to, to tell the Lord Jesus Christ that His love is better than wine. And Therefore, the virgins love you. And she says, draw me away. And they all run after him into the king's chambers, which we see as a major theme of this psalm. The queen and all the honorable women, in other words, the church individually and collectively being brought into the chamber, into the palace of the king. Now, later on in Song of Solomon, you see something that's even more strikingly parallel to Psalm 45. Uh, The the psalmist here is overwhelmed with a desire to speak about the beauty and glory of the king. And if you go to Song of Solomon 5, verse 9, uh, the Shulamite uh, has lost her beloved. She's looking for him. And she finds the daughters of Jerusalem And she asks them if they've seen the Beloved. She's lovesick. And they say this, What is your Beloved more than another Beloved? O fairest among women, What is your Beloved more than another Beloved that you so charge us? So in other words, what is it that attracts you to your Beloved? What is it that motivates you to be roaming around the city at night, seeking Him, searching for Him? Where is He that I might find Him? As Job says. What is it that motivates the believer to be seeking the face of Christ? Well, she she responds, verse 10, My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousand. His head is like the finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yes, He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And it's as she contemplates His beauty and His glory that she eventually finds Him. And that's really the best way, the chief way that we're to find Christ when we feel abandoned, when we feel we've lost the sense of His presence, contemplate His beauty and His glory. Now, Psalm 45 is not going to recapitulate all those things about Christ, uh, but the psalmist here picks one of them. In particular, he revels in the overwhelming, unsurpassed beauty and loveliness of the King's speech. His words. You are fairer than the sons of men Grace is poured upon your lips. So he's he's focusing on one of these aspects. Remember, Song of Solomon mentioned all all of these different things, and we could meditate on, on perhaps the spiritual meaning of some of these things, but notice that multiple times in that list, there's a reference to the beloved's lips or mouth, his speech. She says, verse 10, that he's chief among 10,000. In other words, fairer than the sons of men. It's parallel. Uh, But then, she says, verse 13, his lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. And then at the very end, the last thing that she mentions as the climax of her beautiful description of her beloved his mouth is most sweet, yes, He is altogether lovely. So even in the Song of Solomon, amidst all the different angles and aspects of the Beloved, really it's the mouth, the lips, that take center stage. His lips are as lilies. You think of the, the, the white lily. We, we often think of it as a symbol of purity. His speech is holy, harmless, undefiled, pure. And it's a flower. And so his speech is fragrant. Indeed, it's dripping with liquid myrrh, which interestingly is one of the components of the anointing oil of the sanctuary. Liquid myrrh, uh, which was poured out upon the high priest and and perhaps upon uh, the anointing of a king as well. But... Uh, We can think of Christ as our High Priest. The liquid myrrh. The the gracious words of redeeming mercy that He speaks to us. The, The pure and spotless truth. The fragrant aroma of His gracious words. And His mouth is most sweet. His mouth is most sweet. That's why she desires the kisses of His mouth. That's why she views... Uh, his, his name as ointment poured forth. What Jesus says to His people, what He speaks to us, is sweet and desirable and uh, beautiful. It, it's grace poured out upon His lips. In other words, His lips are anointed with all of the graces of the Holy Spirit in His mediatorial God-man office as, as our mediator. He's anointed with grace and He's full of grace and truth and He speaks words of encouragement, words of love, words of affection, sweet, fragrant words. Grace that's poured out upon His lips so that He can then pour forth gracious words upon His people. And this is the aspect that the psalmist says that he's reveling in. It's the beauty and glory and loveliness of His speech. Now, when we think of beauty, when we think of outward beauty as the imagery here of a, a bride and the bridegroom and this uh, romantic love that, that presents us with these images, when we think of beauty, we often think of physical beauty such as the Song of Solomon brings to bear. Just the, the, the face and, and the body and the shape and all of these things that... That we can be attracted to but the fact of the matter is that speech is an essential aspect of beauty even at a human level even at a human level no doubt there are people that have married their high school sweetheart a a, a handsome man or a beautiful woman and they, they they married exactly who they wanted to marry and physically that everything was they were attracted to the person And yet, over time, because of unkind, uncharitable, angry speech, the person that they initially married that was beautiful or handsome in their sight is no longer seeming so beautiful anymore. Their physical appearance hasn't changed, right? They haven't let themselves go, but their words have been so cutting and so hurtful that Their spouse finds it difficult to view them with the same uh, a sense of attraction and the same beauty as when they first came together. See, you can uh, young people just as an application. You can look for someone who has outward beauty, and that's important too. That's part of the equation. But be careful that you also look for this aspect of beauty: their speech, that they speak kind and gracious words. Because no doubt it can be the case that that someone can be married, and it's the beauty of speech that can draw someone in, even more so than outward beauty. In fact, um, there are some relationships, I'm told, where husband and wife eventually get married and have a long, fruitful relationship, in love with each other. but. Sometimes those relationships begin where the two people haven't even seen each other for quite a long time. They talk on the phone. They write letters. They actually begin to find an appreciation for the beauty of that person's speech and communication long before they experience that physical attraction. And so it is with Christ. We haven't seen Christ, have we? Yet we love Him because He has spoken His Word to us. That word of grace and truth. The lilies, the liquid myrrh, His most sweet, gracious speech, the kisses of His mouth. We haven't laid eyes on Him, though He will be a beauty to behold in every sense of the word. The the shining of the sun will be nothing compared to the glory of Christ. And yet, uh, it's the beauty of His speech. Uh, Proverbs 11.22 tells us that a a, a woman who lacks discretion can be beautiful, but uh, if she lacks discretion, it's like uh, uh, a jewel in a pig's snout. It's a very uh, direct kind of a statement. But you see with Christ, His words, His discreet, His loving, gracious words uh, will never uh, amount to anything along those lines. His beauty is enhanced by His speech. Now, without a doubt, this picture in Psalm 45, this spiritual anointing of gracious and beautiful speech is fulfilled uh, beyond measure in our great mediatorial King, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the sorts of statements where you think, well, isn't this just sort of romantic poetry or uh, a sort of pious verse where He's speaking here in, in, in such exaggerated terms. It's just hyperbole. You're fairer than the sons of men. But no, Christ fulfills this to the extent we can even say that these words don't even do justice to who Jesus is and the extent to which He is filled with this lovely and beautiful, gracious speech. John 1:1 1, 1 tells us that from all eternity, that He was the Word who was with God, and who was God. So Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is the Word of God. We could say personified, if you will. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word and wisdom of God from all eternity. And John says in that same chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on a human body with a tongue and lips and a mouth, and He spoke, we're told, like never a man spake, filled with grace and truth. No one has ever seen God at any time, but the Son of God in the bosom of the Father has declared Him and revealed Him. And this, from the outset of Old Testament prophecy, is precisely what God's people were to expect in this anointed Messiah. That He would be anointed with this grace upon His lips. In fact, Genesis 49-21, when Jacob is blessing and just speaking prophetically. They're not all blessings here, but he's speaking prophetically about his sons. And we're told verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, Jesus is not from the tribe of Naphtali, but the fact is, Jesus' ministry, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus' ministry began in those northern tribes of Galilee, of which one of them was Naphtali. In fact, this is picked up by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, a very familiar passage where those in darkness see a great light. Isaiah 9 verse 1, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's when it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Jesus began His preaching and teaching ministry uh, proclaiming and employing those beautiful words right there in the tribe of Naphtali. And We're told throughout Isaiah's prophetic uh, descriptions of Christ just how gracious His words were. Isaiah 42. Verse 1, Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My elect one in whom My soul delights. This is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, says the Father. I have put My Spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. But notice what this anointing produces in His speech he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. And we're told that uh, this is actually a successful and victorious uh, mode of operations for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not as though he's gentle and kind and loving and affectionate And therefore, he gets trampled underfoot. No, no. This is in a sense the secret to his success. Uh, He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. See, the meek inherit the earth. Jesus Christ uses gracious speech. Self-controlled speech. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He's not harsh. He's not brash. He doesn't quench the smoking flax when we're struggling. When there's not really a fire burning in our Christian life. But just smoke. And you could say, well, there's, where there's smoke, there's a fire. But that's all there is. Uh, we need to be fanned into flame. Jesus doesn't get sick and tired of us, and rebuke us harshly, and chasten us out of measure, and squelch us and, and uh, quench us and be done with us, no. And He doesn't break the bruised reed. And it's that gentleness, as David says. Your gentleness made me great. It's His gentleness that gives victory to His cause. His gracious speech. The gracious and beautiful speech of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was prophesied of Him. Then you come to Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4 and verse 5. Another messianic prophecy. This is Christ speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to Him who is weary. This is a very important prophecy. Isaiah 50 verse 4. This is a prophecy that tells us about the inner thought life of Christ. His heart. And out of his heart, the sort of things that were coming out of his mouth. The Lord gave him the tongue of the learned. In other words, as God, of course, He has all learning and so on. But as the mediator, as man, He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And God has given him the tongue of the learned that he should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Uh, This is a season in which we get weary it's a communion season I realize that as well we can become weary in, in as we're preparing for the Lord's Supper and we feel like there's so many circumstances that are hindering us from from really preparing for the Lord's Supper as we would desire to do uh, many of us ha- have uh, utilized this day as a fast day but perhaps we're weary and burdened by things that have Uh, gotten in our path and disrupted and distracted from that. Perhaps we're thinking about our circumstances and we feel like we're already like Atlas. You know, in the the Greek uh, uh, picture, Atlas, he's holding the world. He's he's bearing all these things on his shoulder. And now, uh, something else is added to the mix in our circumstances. The straw that breaks the camel's back. And we feel weary And we're going through a season of weariness. This tells us that not only in His life on earth, in His ministry on earth, but now through His Word, through His ordinances, Jesus speaks gracious words, a word in season to him who is weary. Now, there's no doubt that He speaks a word in season to him that is stubborn, and a word in season to him that is impenitent, and a word in season to all kinds of different people. I mean, it's not as though anything He says is out of season. But it's specifically emphasized here that He speaks a word in season to those that are struggling. Those that are burdened. Those that are the smoking flax. Those that are the bruised reed. Those that are weary and heavily burdened. He specifically makes it a point to speak a word in season to them. Uh, And we could look further at how He does that and perhaps... We'll do that later on in this message. But I want you to notice this is exactly the sort of gracious speech that was prophesied of Him. Let me give you one more. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is the passage that Jesus preached upon at His first sermon in Nazareth. And He said that these things were fulfilled in Him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. See, again, that anointing imagery. Grace is poured out upon His lips. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Then He's poured grace upon His lips to preach good tidings to the poor. Now, did Jesus preach bad tidings to the impenitent? Absolutely. There's no question. He spoke more about hell than anyone else throughout the Scriptures. But again, notice the emphasis, and we're to take this as as an emphasis in our Lord's preaching and teaching ministry. That as He came across people, that he, He discerned they were poor. They had no righteousness of their own. They were in debt up to their eyeballs to the wrath of God and to the justice of God. And they had no way to redeem their life from the pit. And they're poor and they're needy sinners. And He comes to them and He preaches good tidings, good news. I've come into the world to save you from your sins. Repent and believe the Gospel. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To heal the brokenhearted. So there are those who are convicted of their sins. Those who are burdened with their sins and those who perhaps have also tasted the, the misery and the bitterness of this fallen world as well. And they're overwhelmed by sin and misery and their heart is broken. And Jesus says, I've been sent to heal you. I've been sent to give you peace. To, to take that broken heart and to mend it. and To heal it so that you can have joy again. And that's what we see. To proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the Jubilee where you're set free. You're set free from sin and guilt and fear of wrath. Uh, Set free from bondage to sin. Set free. From all of these things to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So, so yet again, sad to say, the heart of man is so hard that there are still people. Uh, you, you get through two, you know, a verse and a half of the most beautiful statements of gospel promises that you've ever heard. And there's still people that refuse to repent and believe. Don't be that person. Don't be that person where the Lord has to add that at the end of verse 2. The day of vengeance of our God. But again, he continues the theme to comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. And as you've been preparing for the Lord's Supper, as you've been, some of you perhaps, fasting, and thinking about even how pathetic our fasting is. You know, you think, oh, it's a fast day, and you look back and you say, in no sense am I feeling righteous and holy, and, and this is, yeah, I, I feel regret that I could have used this day more, and we feel overwhelmed with conviction of sin, but you know what? That's actually the right attitude to have. If you come out of a fast day feeling really good about yourself, you've kind of missed the point, right? Of course, we want to use our time as best as we can, but I'm saying uh, coming out of a fast day feeling guilty of sin and mourning over sin is, is exactly the point so that we can then come to Jesus and He says, I've been sent out of heaven. Think about how far heaven is from the earth. Jesus was sent from heaven as it were. God comes to the earth. Uh, the incarnation of the Savior in the womb of the Virgin uh, the, spanning that almost seemingly infinite distance. And He's come, He's been sent to comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. To give the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. How how many of us have experienced in recent days, recent hours, recent minutes, the spirit of heaviness? Jesus has been sent. Grace has been poured out upon His lips and He's been sent to you to take away the spirit of heaviness and give you the the garment of praise that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And here's the key. Here's the key. Because so far, Jesus has been sent to do things for us. And that's great news. But remember the ultimate purpose here, that He may be glorified. The planting of Jehovah, that Jehovah may be glorified. Why has Jesus been anointed with gracious words to encourage and strengthen us this evening? It's so that we would then be clothed in that garment of praise and sing praise and worship the name of our great God for His praise and honor and glory. And so this is precisely what Jesus was prophesied to to do, the sort of speech that he was destined to proclaim. And in the gospels we see examples of this. Matthew chapter 11, a familiar passage, verse 28. Jesus has just reflected upon the fact that God the Father in his sovereignty has given knowledge to some and withheld that knowledge from others who remain stubborn in their unbelief and jesus is is contemplating this and he he himself is overflowing with a good theme of the sovereignty of god and he's glorying in it he's rejoicing in the holy spirit but then he says this though he rejoices in the sovereignty of god election and reprobation yet it motivates him to call sinners to be saved. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And it's at this point there are people that say, well, he's not calling everybody. He's calling the the, the weary and the heavily burdened. And you need to examine yourself, they would say, are you sufficiently weary and heavily burdened by your sin are you sufficiently weary and laboring and heavily laden and burdened by the guilt of sin and so you're supposed to enable gaze and think about and and meditate on your, your own performance of mourning over sin and feeling the burden of sin until you're satisfied and then you come back to the verse but you see by the time you've gone through that exercise few ever come back to the verse See, Satan wants to get you away from this verse and away from what Jesus is saying so that you'll focus on yourself when Jesus is saying, come to Me. And if it is the case that you look at your soul and you examine yourself and you don't see the weariness and burden of the guilt of sin, you don't feel as convicted as you ought to be, well then, my friend, let me ask you, do you find that to be a burden? Does that weigh down on you that your lack of being burdened over your sin isn't, it's not more than it is? You're dissatisfied with that? You wish you were more burdened? Are you not heavily laden, even with your dissatisfaction at not being sufficiently heavily laden? You see, at a certain point, this applies to anyone and everyone because we're all burdened. And the only person who's going to respond is the person who senses the burden, obviously. But it's an invitation to every one of us to recognize that burden and come to Him. So He's speaking a word in season to those who are weary. He says, it's a promise. Come to Me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You're weary. You're burdened. You're dissatisfied, even with your dissatisfaction, right? You're, you're repenting over your repentance. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is not out to make an example out of you and to, to, to lambaste you and... And no, he, he rebukes those whom He loves, but His purpose is to unburden you, to commission you as one of His disciples with a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, and to teach you so that you can learn from Him as a teacher who is patient, who is kind, who is not against you but for you, and who, who is lowly in heart. Not an arrogant sort of teacher that smacks you around, but someone who simply line upon line, precept upon precept, patiently, graciously teaches and instructs you every step of the way. And he says, if you do come to me and you are learning of me, then you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was a man of gracious speech, particularly to those who were weary. You can see this in John 14, another example. The disciples are backsliding. They're not listening to Jesus. He's told them however many times that He's going to be crucified and rise again the third day. They're not listening they're not paying attention. They're not even asking him follow-up questions. They're just ignoring him. Uh, they're going through all kinds of problems where they're fighting against each other. You know, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus? And Peter says that he's going to die with Christ. He, he sort of exalts himself against the other disciples and thinks in his own strength that he's going to be a martyr for Christ. And even when Jesus tells him, no, you're going to fail, he, he, he's sure of himself. So these disciples are backsliding. They're not in a good place spiritually. And so you would think that this portion of John's gospel, he would just be ripping them up one side or the other. Okay, he's not doing that. John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, listen, these are people who are backsliding. He's telling them about heaven. He's reassuring them because they they get some sense that He's going to leave them now. They're starting to realize that. And their heart is troubled. And He doesn't say, you're troubled. Look at what I'm going to have to go. He doesn't say that because He has gracious speech. He comforts them. He assures them. He encourages them. And as Psalm 42 points out, He's not disappointed in His sanctifying of His bride Through the washing of water by the word. Uh, There are other examples on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think of the grace of that type of a statement. But I especially want to turn your attention to Matthew 23. It's, It's inevitable that someone in the back of their minds is thinking to themselves, Are we really seeing the full picture of Jesus? Is this really a balanced perspective? on the preaching and teaching ministry of Christ. I mean, what about the seven woes? What about Matthew 23? What about we, Why haven't we heard about any broods of vipers and things like that? Well, it is true. Uh, as I've preached extensively through Matthew 23 at one point in the past, and there's much to be said about the Lord fearlessly and boldly confronting sin Confronting sin in the Pharisees, even when he confronts Peter in Matthew chapter 16, he says, "Get behind me Satan, so he doesn't pull any punches. He does rebuke those whom he loves, and uh, he, he condemns sin. And he does it in Matthew 23. But notice what he says at the end of Matthew 23, after he's pronounced judgment upon them. Verse 37. "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets." and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you that you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So yes, Jesus rakes the Pharisees over the coals. No question about it. And rightly so. And as I said, rebuke is a tool on his tool belt for sure. Uh, But at the end of this condemnation of the Pharisees, notice the way that he responds. Notice that he has a a, a bias for grace, if you will. Speaking condemnation and rebuke is as the Scriptures, and we'll look at this tomorrow morning, Lord willing, um, th- this is what the Scriptures call the Lord's strange work. It's His strange work. It's, In other words, it's something that's necessary for Him to do, but oh how He would have preferred if He could have gathered them. Now, He could have. I don't mean to say He didn't have the power. But oh how He would have preferred if they would have been gathered. If they would have willingly sought Him, if they would have willingly believed on His name and repented of their sins, if they had not been that wicked, perverse, covenant-breaking Jerusalem who kills the prophets. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And He's not saying it like an angry parent might say about their child. Uh, You know, if if their child's name was William. William! William! William, you know, and you go through all the middle names that you can think of. That, that's not what he's saying here. He's more like when David cries out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Listen, how often I want So Jesus, what's most often flowing through His heart and His mind? He wants to gather sinners. He wants to speak gracious words to them. He wants to gather them as a hen gathers her little chicks under her wings. And because they were not willing, He pronounced the seven woes. And my friends, if you're not willing, He will pronounce woes upon you and you will be cast into outer darkness for all eternity. Let's be clear about that. But oh, how he wants to gather sinners to himself and speak gracious words to them as not his strange work, but his proper work. For they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And throughout his life, he had many testimonials to his gracious speech. When he spoke in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth in Luke 4, verse 22, though he was rejected, listen to what it says about how the people heard him. So all bore witness to him. These are people that eventually tried to throw him off of the hillside, okay? So this should be significant. They all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words of which proceeded out of his mouth and they said is this not Joseph's son? In other words they're saying this is beyond what mere human nature could produce. And there's a problem with the way they put that but, but in a sense you can see they're marveling at the otherworldly grace of his speech. Grace was poured out upon his lips and and even his enemies recognized it. Uh, when The scribes and Pharisees sent people to arrest Jesus. John 7, 46. These officers, and they come back to the Pharisees and the chief priests, and they're questioned, why have you not arrested him? Why have you not brought him with you? And verse 46, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Now what do they mean by that? Well, they mean that when they listened to him, something in what he was saying disarmed them, not literally, but maybe literally, disarmed them so that they're not trying to arrest him. They were, uh, they were amazed, probably at his gracious speech. Uh, and these are his enemies. These are people who were not his disciples. These people got paid to arrest him and they forfeited their paycheck, as it were. They broke their contract with the scribes. Uh, Listen to these testimonies of Jesus' gracious speech. Now, I realize that many people said evil things about Jesus. Now, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That's another aspect here. But I think it's interesting that there there was at least some sense in which people that disagreed with him could still acknowledge that he was a gracious person and that he spoke graciously. And that should be true of us as well. That should be true of every Christian. If Christ as our mediator has been anointed with the spirit of grace and that spirit flows to his members, it flows down upon his bride, the church, then the fact is that we should have gracious speech flowing out of our mouths so that even our enemies to some extent uh, could be convicted by the gracious words that are coming out of our mouths. And uh, again Jesus was being persecuted and the persecution came to an end in that instance because of his gracious speech so much more could be said about our own day in addition Jesus gives us in a sense the secret to his gracious speech Uh, John 8 verse 28 Starting in the second half of the verse. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. As my Father taught me, so I speak these things. And there are several instances where Jesus says something to this effect. John 12:49 and 50 would be another example. This is all in John's Gospel. This is emphasized. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And verse 50 confirms that as well. He thought about what does God want me to say? I mean that just boils it down for all of us. I know we're not in the same position as the mediator of the covenant of grace, but friends, we should be thinking like Jesus was thinking: What does God want me to say? What does God want me to say in this situation? Or if we're on our way to work, uh, what is? How does God want me to speak to different people in the office? What sort of attitude? What sort of words? Uh, every morning we should seek to have grace poured out upon our lips every morning morning by morning as we study the word of god prayerfully we should be receiving our marching orders what we're to say and what we're to do it wasn't as though jesus as the eternal son of god fulfilled all righteousness without having to learn obedience and go through this organic process of thinking what does my father want me to say and do that's what I'm going to say and do. What does He not want me to say and not want me to do? Therefore, I'm, I'm going to avoid those things. That is the, the ministry, the life of Christ during uh, the, the uh, record of the Gospels as it's portrayed to us. Now, the psalmist accentuates Christ's loveliness in His words by contrasting those words With the words of the fallen sons of men. So, Psalm 45, if we go back to our passage, grace is poured upon your lips. Or, sorry, verse 2 you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Those two statements are connected he's fairer than the sons of men and he's fairer and more beautiful than the sons of men in this specific way that grace is poured out upon his lips because uh, the the fallen sons of Adam, and that's the phrase in Hebrew here, the sons of Adam, not just the sons of men, but those fallen sons of Adam of whom we all are by nature, uh, we don't have grace poured out upon our lips by nature, do we? Now, these sons of Adam are referred to throughout the Psalms. Psalm 57.4. Listen to what it says. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of Adam who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. The sons of Adam, the natural man in his natural sinfulness is a fierce lion Uh, his tongue as it were is set on fire as james says it's untamed he's an untamed lion and his tongue is set on fire by hell and his teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword now we know the lord jesus christ has sharp arrows his arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies and we know that he girds his sword upon his thigh But his words and his sword and his arrows are not like those of the children of Adam. Because he rides forth not just for truth and righteousness, but for meekness and humility, verse 4. And what makes his sword sharp and what makes his arrows sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies is the graciousness of his speech. Unnecessary bluntness does not make for a sharp arrow in proclaiming the truth and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, by contrast, He's the Lion of Judah, but He's not a fierce and untamed lion, and His words are not sharp swords and arrows of sinful, harsh, and brash speech. Paul deals with this aspect of human depravity and of the believer's remaining sin by implication. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 10 and following, but let me just read verse 13. Speaking of the, the natural man who's unrighteous, who doesn't seek after God, their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they practice deceit, their, the poison of asps, snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And it goes on to say, the way of peace they have not known. My friends, look at the contrast between the words of Christ, His gracious speech, and all of us by nature in our sinfulness. What an overpowering motive to forget and forsake all for Christ. What an overpowering motive to be married to Jesus Christ by faith. Verse 10: Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear; forget your own people also and your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty, because he is your lord. Worship him. You've got to, as as uh, Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. And this is a Lord that you can serve. This is a royal bridegroom who will take you under His wing. This is the Savior of the world who will redeem you from your sin and bring you into a covenant of marriage with Himself. And yes, He calls you to forget your own people and your Father's house, but my friends, think of our own people by nature. Think of our own hearts by nature. Think of our Father's house By nature, thinking of our father Adam, even our father the devil, and the fallen race of men that surrounds us in the office, in the classroom, in the streets, in in the community. Uh, Again, contrast Christ's beautiful, gracious words with what we find among the fallen sons of men around us. And there's no question, there's no question that no one will ever speak to you like this man. You may have come here tonight in opposition to Christ, even as the henchmen of the Pharisees were out to arrest Jesus, but when they came in contact, they couldn't go through with it. No one ever spoke like this man. No one will ever speak to you like this man. And in a world where so few people do speak graciously, is there any reason not to come to the Savior and embrace a relationship with Him and read His Word every day and He'll speak to you like never a man spake gracious words. He'll speak to you a word in season when you're weary. Psalm 31:19. Oh, how great is Your goodness which You have laid up for those who fear You, which You have prepared for those who trust You in the presence of the sons of men. Sons of Adam. What goodness, what loving kindness has the Lord prepared for us as we continue in this life surrounded in society, even in the church, by harsh and brash and, and, and unkind and uncharitable words that come sometimes in our families. In the presence of the sons of Adam, you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence, from the plots of man, you shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Doesn't mean that he'll take you out of that family, out of that church situation, out of that school, classroom, or workplace, or extended family vacation, or whatever it is, uh, society at large, doesn't mean He's going to take you out of the presence of the sons of men, out of the world, but His peace He gives you in the world. Not as the world gives, Uh, but spiritually, you find refuge in Him. He will keep you secretly in His pavilion, far from the strife of tongues, such that you can live a happy and joyful life in the presence of unconverted or backslidden or just ornery Christian people at a given moment and you can have peace and joy and contentment. What an overpowering motive to forget and forsake all for Christ. I mean, what are we forsaking but the inheritance of the sons of Adam and and, and a whole lot of uh, misery? Let's forsake it all and let's go to Jesus and take refuge in Him. In addition, what a horrifyingly disturbing, humbling, and convicting contrast between the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the words that we so often speak to each other and to other people. What a contrast. What a convicting contrast. How often do we in some sense break the bruised reed with foolish statements Unkind statements, unwarranted statements, statements that we're not actually consciously thinking, Lord, do you want me to say this? Is this something that's good? And we're following His lead. But we quench the smoking flax. We break the bruised reed. Uh, We speak an unseasonable word to someone who's weary and we make them wearier and wearier and wearier than they are. And there are those who are mourning and broken hearted and rather than bringing them glad tidings of great joy and giving them the garment of praise and speaking to them gracious gospel words or just simply gracious, friendly, sensitive, caring words, uh, we were more like the sons of Adam. And we confess even with Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isn't it interesting? That Isaiah recognizes the unloveliness of his speech when he comes into the presence of the loveliness of this king. Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There's the sons of Adam, but at the same time, he's saying I'm guilty as well. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." It it was his perception of the beauty of this King that unmasked and unveiled this horrifying contrast. And he is undone. Undone. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. How often we could say the same of ourselves. "Woe is me for I am a man of unkind lips. For I am a man of unmerciful, unforgiving lips. Woe is me for I am a man of uncharitable, unseasonable, unnecessary words and, and unwise, unhelpful, unchrist-like words coming out of my lips. Jesus says it's by our words that we'll be justified and by our words that we'll be condemned. And let's praise God that when He says that, He's not telling us that as believers we're going to be judged and and it's heaven or hell based upon our own words. Because the fact is, we are a people of unclean, unkind, uncharitable, unseasonable lips. And our only hope is the comforting reminder that we find in this psalm comforting reminder of God's saving grace to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are in fact justified. Justified through His perfect righteousness. Peter says that he, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Right? And that's often the case. When we sin with our mouths, often we have an excuse. Well, you should have heard what they said to me. and And well... Jesus was reviled, and he didn't revile in return. He didn't return evil for evil. He overcame evil with good. And Peter goes on in the very next verse to tell us that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. So Jesus, his perfect obedience to all the commandments that deal with our words, and his suffering of the infinite wrath of God, bearing our sins in His body on the tree, He saved us from the condemnation that would be ours because of our sinful speech. And it's interesting. We read from uh, John 12, 49 and 50. Uh, Well, we read from verse 49 that He spoke whatever the Father commanded Him to speak. Uh, But verse 50 after having said that he says i know that his command is everlasting life therefore whatever i speak just as the father has told me so i speak what's he saying there jesus doesn't need everlasting life he's the son of god jesus did and said whatever the father commanded him to do and say to obtain eternal life for every one of his people and that's our comfort That no one ever spoke like Him. That no deceit was found on His lips. He never reviled in return. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled with His lips, with His heart, and with His hands. And therefore, we have a guarantee of everlasting life through faith in Him. But we're also promised sanctification. In Psalm 45, not only are we saved through the righteousness of His gracious words, but He has this anointing poured out upon Him. And it's poured out upon Him, we know from Scripture, as our mediator. He's anointed with the Spirit, and as Psalm 133 says, that outpouring of the Spirit of God, the oil that's poured out upon Aaron, flows down to his garments, flows from the head to the body. It's not just Christ that was anointed with gracious speech, and with the oil of gladness, but also his companions, as we'll see, Lord willing, tomorrow. His companions. His bride. His honorable women. His sons that He makes princes in the land. We as His people are anointed with the grace of the Holy Spirit. So that we can do as Paul commands us to do. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each one. So that you may know how to answer each one. How are we going to know how to speak a word in season as Isaiah 50 verse 4 speaks of Christ? How are we going to know what we should speak and what we should say? Well, what are we told in Isaiah 50 verse 4? How did Jesus do it? Because if we received the anointing that flows from him and we to walk in his steps, then, my friends, we need to listen to the way that he was able to cultivate gracious speech. The Lord God, Isaiah 50, verse 4, has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. You say, okay, well, how do we get the tongue of the learned? How do we know how we should speak to each one? He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. So what it's telling us is we need to listen. We need to listen to God's Word and we need to allow it to awaken us morning by morning. You may get up in the morning and be awake and you get in your car and you go to work or you get up and you do whatever you're going to do. But are you only waking physically or are you also waking spiritually are you allowing the word of God to awaken your soul to the reality of the gospel and the reality of God's commandments and his will for your life morning by morning Jesus had a personal devotional life morning by morning by morning by morning and obviously some of us have really extraordinary schedules but not all of us do and so Ordinarily, morning by morning by morning, He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. If we're going to be the learned, then we need to be teachable learners and heeders of this King, of this teacher who is meek and lowly and gentle. And we need to carefully observe times and seasons. If we're to speak a word in season, with grace, seasoned with salt, then we need to be paying attention to circumstances, paying attention to people, considering one another. Uh, We want to be like the king who noticed that Nehemiah was sad and asked him about it. Being sensitive, considerate, concerned for others. And ultimately, cultivating an intimate, personal communion with God morning by morning by morning by morning. Uh, We're told in James 3, 4, I'm ending with this, that the tongue is the rudder that determines our direction and our destination. The way that we speak, the way we speak to God in prayer, what we sing in our psalm singing, but the way we speak to each other, what we say with our lips is a rudder that determines our direction and our destination, either on a collision course with either hell or chastisement from God as our Father, or whether we're led onward and upward into a life of increased sanctifying grace by speaking gracious words. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we pray this evening that You would anoint us with grace upon our lips. We know that You have anointed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, we pray that His anointing, that spiritual blessedness that is reserved for us in Christ in heavenly places would be poured out beyond measure. And that we would be filled with this noble theme. That we would receive these words of encouragement and comfort and consolation. And that in kind we would return that favor in our words to others. Not quenching the smoking flax or breaking the bruised reed. But speaking words in season to those who are weary and heavily burdened. That they might find rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.